This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to the In Focus podcast. This is G Sampath, your host for today's episode. Chief Justice of the Supreme Court N V Ramana recently spoke of the need to Indianize the justice system. He said that there were a lot of practices that have been carried over from the colonial period, including language practices and lengthy. often technical judgments that alienate the common man from the judiciary he stressed that the justice system needs to minimize procedural barriers so that accessing justice becomes simpler now coming from the highest justice officer of the country his remarks naturally made the headlines there is no doubt that india's justice delivery systems need improvement and any debate on what needs to change is most welcome however Indianization is an odd way of framing the reforms needed to make justice delivery more efficient. What exactly does Indianization mean? How useful is it as a conceptual frame for identifying the reforms that are needed? And if we were to interpret Indianization broadly as a synonym for people friendly, what kind of changes should we aim for? We explore these questions and more with Arthi Raghavan, an advocate who practices at the Bombay High Court. Arthi thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me Sampath. Arthi legal experts and jurists have spoken from time to time of the different kinds of reforms that are needed to make the Indian justice system more fair and more effective. So what kind of reforms according to you would indianization really entail? First off I should point out that I do take issue with the term indianization but I will elaborate on my reasons for that a little further into this podcast. but let's adopt the chief justice's use of this word where he clarified that what he meant by indianization was the need to adapt to the practical realities of our society and localize justice delivery it would be quite a task to identify all the crucial reforms our legal system needs in order to make it more fair and effective but we could start by discussing the elements that the chief justice himself identified as the need of the hour He said in his speech that justice delivery should be one transparent, two accessible, and three effective. Taking it one by one, let's go to transparency. One of the biggest problems in our system is the absence of transparency when it comes to listing of matters in court. What you find is that there is no clear or discernible basis on which cases are listed and heard. no prescription or rule that ensures that certain matters are not given undue priority and unfortunately the supreme court that chief justice ramana heads at the moment exemplifies this problem so i can give you an example that you may recall from last year which is in november 2020 when arnab goswami moved the supreme court against the bombay high court's order refusing to grant him interim bail his matter was listed the very next day despite the registry of the supreme court having identified nine defects in his petition so typically when petitions are filed and defects are identified they are not listed unless these defects are cured however this did not preclude the immediate listing of mr goswami's petition and as you may remember he secured bail from the supreme court that day and the judgment that was issued eventually stressed on the important role that constitutional courts play in securing liberty for citizens but what's interesting to see is a radically different approach that the supreme court adopted in the case of another journalist mr sidik kapan so sidik kapan was arrested in uttar pradesh while covering a subject that is far less politically convenient than matters covered by mr goswami's channel so he was covering the hathras raid 
a hibis corpus petition for his release was moved before the Supreme Court within 24 hours of his detention. Hibis corpus petitions are supposed to be accorded utmost priority as they are moved in cases of unlawful detention. But this petition came to be adjourned multiple times with no relief being granted and to this date remains pending before the court and has probably been rendered infructuous since charges have now eventually been filed against him. So I think it's unacceptable that a justice delivery system does not ensure that matters are treated in an egalitarian manner in terms of the speed at which they're listed and the duration of time for which they're heard and when they're disposed of. Cases just cannot be accorded different priorities based on the profile of the litigant or their counsel or on the political sensitivity of the case. And addressing this would be a significant step towards transparency and improving access to justice. Now, moving to the other elements, the issues of accessibility and effectiveness, the mundane issues such as crowded courtrooms because of the volume of cases listed on a daily basis. And this often impedes litigants' access to proceedings in court. While, of course, courts are under tremendous pressure on account of the poor judge-to-citizen ratio in the country, matters are not helped by the practice of courts listing hundreds of matters on a day, but only hearing a few effectively. So you have a situation where parties and their lawyers in other matters also mill about courtrooms on the off chance that their matter will get taken up. People forego earnings in order to attend court when their matter is listed, only to find out that their case is never taken up or is adjourned without any proper justification or payment of costs. Another serious impediment to accessibility is the costs of litigation, particularly at the high court and Supreme Court level. Our legal aid system is grossly underfunded and therefore underserved. Further, there is a rather overt bias in the system in favor of senior advocates who are a minuscule minority of the legal community. I mean, in an ideal world, a justice delivery system will ensure that matters are taken up with the same degree of alacrity, regardless of the profile of lawyers representing the client. But I have to admit, as a lawyer in the Indian system, it is hard to ignore the latitude and indulgence that a court grants senior advocates, and by extension, their clients. It's important to remember that a court's time is a national resource that any citizen has an equal right to. And the access to this resource should not hinge on your ability to engage a senior at several lakhs per appearance, which is clearly beyond the means of most Indian citizens. There are other issues of accessibility and transparency, such as, for instance, the absence of transcripts for court proceedings. Even our High Court and the Supreme Court has no High Courts and the Supreme Court has no mechanism by which there is a complete and accurate record of court proceedings maintained. So what happens is that the orders passed by a court fail often to record what actually transpired. And this is a serious disadvantage to a litigant. India's failure in this regard is egregious because countries such as Brazil, Romania, Malaysia, Germany, South Africa, New Zealand, and of course, the United States and the United Kingdom, amongst others, have had such systems in place for decades and sometimes even for their lower courts. In India, uh, litigants are disadvantaged because they have no means to have an official and accurate record of what transpired in a courtroom. Circling back to your original question, any meaningful reform of our legal system should address these multiple fundamental flaws. I mean, there are others, of course, I'm just 
highlighting a few flaws that I thought were significant. And while transparency, accessibility and effectiveness are indeed aspirational standards for any system, and I agree with Chief Justice Ramana for that, I think it is interesting that he chooses the word Indianize for the process of achieving these reforms, clearly implying that the factors that prevent our legal system from attaining these standards are colonial or foreign. I would dispute this choice of word because, if anything, I believe that these serious flaws in our system are endemic to India and cannot, in fairness, be attributed to our colonial past. Listening to your uh, overview of the various areas where reform might be necessary, I was struck by a clear discrepancy in this, which is the discrepancy between the kind of public posturings that various judges seem to take Uh, which don't necessarily find reflection in the kind of orders and judgments that come out of the judiciary. And and you gave the example of Goswami and uh, Siddhi Kappan and also the question of transparency in the listing of cases. Now, my question to you is, we have to, as the media, we have to report the statements of judges wherever they make them because they have public interest value. But is there a growing or a consistent trend that you see of a discrepancy between the oral observations of judges either in the courtroom or in public speeches and the nature of the judgments and orders that are actually passed? Are the values espoused by judges in public remarks getting reflected in their orders? Well, I think the short answer would be no, not often. I agree there is clearly a divergence between professed adherence to values and the actual outcomes in courtroom proceedings. There is an inordinate amount of coverage by the media of these oral observations and remarks. And the coverage, I think, is often very uncritical. And I think that is something that the media needs to perhaps also reflect on and correct. And take a few recent examples to establish why this is, in fact, a cause for concern. But I wouldn't say that it is a recent trend. I think judicial doublespeak is a phenomenon that has plagued our Supreme Court for decades. Judges often make rousing remarks about fundamental rights and liberties, but pass orders that directly conflict with those rights. A famous example of this was the former Chief Justice Chandrachud's judgment in the Olga Tellis matter, which is often celebrated and even taught in law schools as a landmark judgment that recognizes the right to a livelihood as a part of the right to life. And this case related to the mass eviction and deportation of pavement dwellers in Bombay. While waxing eloquent on the right to livelihood being inextricably linked to the right to life and how the right to life means more than a mere animal existence, one proceeds to the end of the judgment only to find that the eventual order of the court declined relief to the pavement dwellers and permitted the eviction. So I've just given you a famous example from the 80s, but you can even see it recently in editorials and articles that have been written in the media in praise of Chief Justice Ramana and how he's a welcome change from his predecessors in his approach to standing up to government. In June 2021, Chief Justice Ramana had in fact delivered a lecture on the rule of law where he acknowledged that the change of elected representatives every few years does not in itself act as a check against tyranny and stressed on the importance of dissent and protest in a democracy. The speech was much feted in the media and quoted from extensively in a piece in the wire that the wire ran, for instance, where it was declared that Chief Justice Ramana had restored judicial spirit and spark. But now let's look at judicial action. In July 2021, the Pegasus story broke. 
a number of petitions were filed in the Supreme Court seeking an inquiry into one of the biggest global news stories of recent times. It involved the unlawful state surveillance targeting a number of dissenters and journalists, amongst other people. Over the course of multiple widely publicized hearings, the government stonewalled all efforts to seek a cogent response by way of an affidavit, citing national security concerns. The Chief Justice's remarks to the government stating that it must not beat around the bush were widely reported. However, the matter has been reserved for interim orders, interim orders, mind you, for over a month, with no sign of any sort of effective directions against the government being passed. There are a few other examples that I can give you from recent times. One is Chief Justice Ramana's rather welcome remarks where he said that there ought to be 50% reservation for women as a matter of right in the judiciary. He acknowledged systemic barriers in the profession that kept women out of it. And it was also under his leadership that the appointment of three women to the women judges to the Supreme Court was made. And it's rightly been considered historic. However, I should point out that better representation, gender representation at the Supreme Court is secured not only through appointments at the Supreme Court level, but also ensuring more diversity at the High Court level, because that is where eventually a Supreme Court appointments are made from most often. In this regard, Chief Justice Ramana's track record hasn't been given enough attention, and it is far less historic. Only 18% of the nominations to the High Court made by the Supreme Court Collegium under Chief Justice Ramana are women which is hardly an improvement from the past. Of the 18 high courts in the country, only one at present has a woman acting chief justice. These were also appointments within Chief Justice Ramana's control. So it's curious why he didn't direct his efforts at securing better outcomes at the high court level. There are multiple such instances of judicial doublespeak, which needs to be looked at with greater rigor and a more critical eye by the media and other legal commentators. I guess it's a fair point that when we report the statements of judges and give publicity to the positive vibes they seem to generate, which are very important these days. Nevertheless, there also needs to be a reasonably critical contextualization of these remarks as we cover them. That's a fair point. Now, coming back to the question of Indianization that the Chief Justice spoke about, one of the things he referred to is that the languages and the practices used in the court a need to be more people-friendly. So how could we possibly Indianize the languages used? We use English and Hindi for as I know, given the practical difficulties that this might pose in a country of such great linguistic diversity. I mean, absolutely, there would be tremendous logistical issues with implementing or with uh, truly giving respect to linguistic diversity. But I should point out that lower courts do tend to adopt local languages, both in terms of the oral proceedings and even in written records. It is more the high courts and the Supreme Court that conduct proceedings predominantly or exclusively in English. And English is, of course, one of the two official languages of India. So English is not really un-Indian in that sense. A common language is helpful because most law is written in this language, that is English, and it also tends to preserve a degree of uniformity across constitutional courts. It enables advocates to practice across the country, which would not be possible if there was a language barrier in that sense. But in order to make litigation more people-friendly or citizen-friendly, it would be helpful if translations of orders and court proceedings are available in local languages more easily and in a more cost-effective way. But issues of language barriers are perhaps secondary when it comes to the scheme of things and a priority of what needs to be reformed in the legal system, I would feel. 
the primary issue is very often simple things like improving court infrastructure and even making available records of proceedings more easily to litigants. That said, I think, I mean, there is a point to be made about legal language, even in English, being notoriously obtuse. Pleadings and oral arguments and judgments have a tendency to be verbose. I mean, lawyers are often derided for this. In pleadings, you repeat and reiterate. You make submissions at the outset and then at the further outset. Supreme Court judgments use slightly absurd phrases like undraping facts, whatever that means. Simple, clear writing and advocacy is definitely desirable and would benefit both litigants and members of the profession. But I would say the Supreme Court should lead by example in this regard, instead of issuing judgments that run into hundreds and hundreds of pages. So I think some self-reflection is really the need of the hour here. Okay. Now, many analysts believe uh, that one of the reasons, if you look at those three factors we discussed earlier, transparency, effectiveness and accessibility, uh, on all three parameters, the justice system could be far more people friendly. And one of the reasons why it is not so is because governments of independent India have shown little interest or no interest in removing many of the colonial elements from the law, which we just blindly inherited and carried on with. Can you talk about a few such anti-people statutes or procedural aspects which may have made sense in a colonial justice system but should have no place in an appropriately independent and appropriately Indianized people-friendly legal system? There are several substantive provisions of law that are definitely colonial relics. Some striking examples of that would be offenses such as sedition, obscenity, penal provisions relating to outraging the modesty of a woman or until recently criminalizing sexual acts that are considered to be against the order of nature. The powers that constitutional courts enjoy regarding criminal contempt is another example of this. And there has been a marked inertia or reluctance when it comes to removing these provisions from our statute books. But the problem is not just our reluctance to purge our laws of these colonial relics. Oppressive laws have been consciously enacted by legislature of our independent republic. So, I mean, these include laws such as TADA, the UAPA, the NDPS, MISA, all of which have been abused by the system and it's gone unchecked by the courts. Also, I mean, we should remember that preventive detention is in fact expressly permitted under the constitution and is ironically provided for in part three of our constitution that deals with our fundamental rights, including our right to life and personal uh, liberty. So again, we should remember that the Indian approach has not necessarily been people-friendly. And while we can say in fairness that we have inherited regressive colonial laws, it's not that we've made much of a departure from that tendency during the 70-plus years of independence that we've had. Okay. That's an interesting point you're making. You're saying that Indianization doesn't necessarily mean moving beyond or transcending colonial way of administering justice because the Indian laws which have been enacted post-independence haven't really been much different in terms of things like TADA, POTA and so on that you mentioned. Now, let's say Indianizing is just an odd phrase for making the legal system more people-friendly. Can the Supreme Court be expected to take the lead in making these kinds of reforms to make the justice system more people-friendly or is this something that can only happen through civil society struggles and civil society campaigns? I think on making the court people-friendly, I would have to say that the Supreme Court is one of the 
last institutions that we can turn to. It has historically been non-representative and is, as a result has not been sensitive to various social realities. It's hugely tradition-bound, patriarchal in its composition and mindset often, elitist and dominated by members of the upper caste. It also happens to be the least accountable organ of state, particularly the higher judiciary in matters of judicial appointment, in matters of transfer of judges from one court to another, and inquiries into judicial misconduct. There is no transparency or accountability of the judiciary. And this is very much a self-fashioned set of rules, which the judiciary claims has been made in order to preserve its independence, but really serves to protect it from any form of scrutiny or accountability to the people. The Supreme Court has also expanded its jurisdiction in its activist avatar and has taken on legislative and executive functions that are far beyond its constitutional remit. And this has very often been to the detriment of public interest or antithetical to public interest. Another example of why the Supreme Court cannot necessarily be trusted to make the legal system more people-friendly is the fact that for some decades now, there have been repeated calls for establishing circuit benches of the Supreme Court because approaching the Supreme Court is both physically and financially a rather daunting prospect for most litigants across the country. And the establishment of circuit benches in other parts of the country could perhaps address this in some measure. And despite official reports suggesting it, members of the legal community calling for it, and the Supreme Court rules itself contemplating that such benches can be established by the court, this has actually never been done. So I wouldn't turn to the courts really to fashion a more people-friendly legal system. As one of Indian, India's best lawyers, K.G. Kanabaran, once said, courts are ultimately a site of resistance. To look to it for deliverance or as an upholder of freedoms would be to ignore their abetment of suppression of rights historically. It is ultimately an organ of state that must be made accountable and answerable to the people it serves. But I think it's ultimately civil society's job to keep reminding it of its role and its obligations in that regard. Right. That is indeed a big challenge to make the judiciary answerable to the people it is meant to serve. Arti, we are running out of time now. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your very, very interesting and valuable comments and thoughts on this very important subject. Pleasure talking to you. Likewise. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.